0: Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good day, I'm Lori Sony, a Cardiothoracic Surgery Fellow and it is a great privilege to be here at Johns Hopkins with Dr. Duke Cameron, Professor and Chief of Cardiac Surgery and the 98th AATS President. Dr. Cameron is very well respected in the field of congenital heart surgery. In addition, Dr. Cameron is recognized for his expertise in aortic surgery, particularly with regards to patients with connective tissue disorders. Thank you, Dr. Cameron, for speaking with us on the topic of aortic insufficiency.
1: Good morning. It's great, great to be here.
0: So, a 6-year-old executive is referred to your clinic, accustomed to a vigorous lifestyle of meetings and travel. She has noticed of late that she tires more easily. When she's on the treadmill, she has to take multiple breaths, multiple breaks to catch her breath. Upon examination, her heart rate is 70. Her blood pressure is 130 over 40. On auscultation, she has an early diastolic murmur. Her lungs are clear, palpation of her pulse reveals a water hammer characteristic. She has no JVD and no edema. She has no significant past medical history and takes no medications. Dr. Cameron, what's the differential diagnosis?
1: Well, the list of potential diagnoses is, is actually very long based on her symptoms. Uh, Exertional dyspnea can be due to a a wide range of problems, including pulmonary ones and, uh, of course, cardiac. And even within the cardiac, this can be valve disease. Uh, This can even be ischemic heart disease or cardiomyopathies. Uh, uh, Even a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient can can present like this. But the tip-off that really focuses the diagnosis is on the physical examination and what's striking here is that she has a very wide pulse pressure, very low diastolic pressure, and a diastolic murmur. Uh, And that really directs us to uh, aortic regurgitation as uh, the most likely explanation for this. I'll mention that the fact that she really has no jugular venous distension and no peripheral edema and that her lungs are clear shouldn't discourage us from that diagnosis because often adults uh, when they present with severe aortic regurgitation, particularly if it's been slow and gradual and the ventricle has had time to adapt to it, they often don't really prevent it or present in frank heart failure. It's, a, it's, it's an early symptom of, of uh, dyspnea. And, uh, and so this, this is a, 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 a very classic presentation of chronic aortic regurgitation with some early decompensation uh, manifest as her exertional dyspnea.
0: So she gets an echo report, and it states that she has moderate AI. There are no other abnormalities on her echo. The EF is normal. Her end systolic diameter is less than 55 millimeters, and the end diastolic diameter is less than 75 millimeters. She asks you if she needs an operation, but states that she would prefer to avoid surgery. What are her options?
1: Well, for, first of all, I'd I, I point out that the, the echo that you describe um, is, is, uh, is a good example of how the assessment of aortic regurgitation by an echo is, is not always uh, as accurate as we would like it to be. By, by physical exam, she almost certainly has severe aortic regurgitation, and yet her echo uh, is stating that it's only moderate. And that happens fairly often, that the echo either overestimates or underestimates the, the AR. So anytime you see an echo finding like this that doesn't really fit with the, the big clinical picture, um, go back and look at that echo yourself, first of all. Don't don't trust the, the interpretation of it uh, that's been put on paper. Look at it yourself and make sure that it's an adequate study and that, uh, that you think the assessment of the AR uh, is accurate. Now color Doppler has, has lots of pitfalls to it, but the tip-off on this echo is that our left ventricular end diastolic uh, diameter, although they say that it's less than 75 millimeters, 75 millimeters would be very high if it were a seven centimeter ventricle. This uh, this clinical presentation and these symptoms, that's a very dilated ventricle. So. Uh, Pay attention to, to the size of the left ventricle. That's often the, uh, the best footprint, if you will, of, of how much AR there, there really is. Uh, you can be thrown off on that too, though, with young patients who are athletes. They develop very big hearts. Uh, their systolic function is, is still good, uh, and uh, it, if you rely only on the end diastolic measurement in those patients, uh, you, you can also be misled, because their hearts are big, they appear dilated, but they're actually uh, in, in good shape. But you asked, uh, does she need an operation? And uh, she's also expressed uh, her desire to avoid surgery. Uh, well, she w- will need an operation, I'm, I'm sure of that. Does she need one right now? Well, probably not. Their ventricle is uh, a, a little dilated, she's starting to have some symptoms, but she's on no medications. and. Often, uh, these patients can be started on a diuretic and afterload reduction, and there can be some improvement um, in uh, LV performance, and the symptoms can go away. But it's unclear whether there is advantage to delaying surgery when there's this much aortic regurgitation, already symptoms, and uh, and a ventricle that is probably dilating. So I, I would encourage her to start thinking about early surgery, but it could probably be put off for a while uh, if she has a good response to medications.
0: So she was placed on afterload reduction agents. Six months go by and she comes to see you again. She expresses frustration that her symptoms have not improved. She has no plans on retiring anytime soon and she wants to be able to keep up with her business and lifestyle. She has another echo and this time she brings you the report as well as the images. It shows that her end diastolic diameter has enlarged to 70 millimeters. With exercise, there is a fall in her EF of greater than 10%. When you review the echo images, what are you looking for with respect to the regurgitant jet and the aortic valve?
1: Well, uh, before we talk about the echo, I'll, I'll just mention that probably seeing her six months after the initial visit is waiting a bit too long. She probably needed a reassessment in closer to three months, um, because people can fall off the curve uh, with, with this disease. They usually don't die suddenly, but, uh, but they, can, they can come back uh, in fairly profound heart failure, uh, and you, you just don't want that to happen. So probably would have been better to see her at about uh, three months. But assuming she's come back now, and uh, the ventricle now is more dilated in a relatively short period of time, and her ejection fraction is beginning to fall. Uh, and her symptoms persist so now it's pretty clear she needs an operation and she probably should have it reasonably soon not emergently not urgently but soon and we uh, re- looking at the echo uh, what are the things we're looking at uh, well overall left ventricular size and she has uh, reached criteria at seven centimeters of a dilated ventricle that probably needs uh, intervention soon um, I would be interested in the, in the nature and the direction of the uh, aortic regurgitation jet uh, and whether or not there are obvious leaflet abnormalities. And certainly in a patient this age, uh, uh, who, relatively young with severe aortic regurgitation, a uh, congenitally bicuspid aortic valve is the most likely uh, cause of this. So I'd be interested in valve morphology from the echo the direction of the jet whether it's uh, through a leaflet perforation or prolapse of one leaflet, a, a cleft in a bicuspid aortic valve or primary aortic disease if she may have a, a big aortic root uh, that can be the mechanism of the aortic regurgitation and that's a different disease, that's aortic disease with uh, uh, a treatment that would aim more in replacing the aortic root to restore aortic competence rather than replacing the valve. But her previous echo didn't show an enlarged root, so most likely this is a a regurgitant aortic valve without root disease, and uh, most likely a bicuspid valve. But there there are other causes of uh, this, Um, and the echo might shed some some light on that.
0: Is there a role for obtaining a TEE?
1: Well, that's a good question, and I would say that's controversial. I don't think you need a TEE to assess the degree of aortic regurgitation, but if there's some uh, uncertainty as to why the valve is regurgitant, uh, if it doesn't look, for instance, like a bicuspid valve, uh, then sometimes an echo is useful, particularly if you want to evaluate the possibility of repairing the valve rather than replacing it. So that's, that's when I get the TEE, when I'm really unsure of the mechanism. And I want to be able to discuss with the patient preoperatively what the options might be other than replacing the valve. And of course, uh, there are sometimes questions about whether or not there's mitral valve disease, primary or secondary to the AR. And these things sometimes can be evaluated a little better with TE. But does every patient who has AR who needs a surgical intervention need a preoperative TE? I would say no.
0: When would you get a CT scan?
1: Well, uh, again, somewhat controversial. I think if, uh, if there is a question about aortic dilatation, root or ascending aortic dilatation, uh, t- a, t- a CT scan will provide better imaging of the mid-ascending aorta. Uh, it does pretty well on the root uh, compared to CT scan in, in uh, patients with good acoustic windows. Uh, And the other role for CT scanning would be uh, as uh, a screening test for coronary disease. Uh, Again, this is a relatively young patient who, at 60 years of age, if she didn't have risk factors for coronary artery disease, uh, a CT scan uh, and calcium scoring and perhaps even coronary imaging uh, would be valuable and perhaps avoid preoperative catheterization if it's negative. But unfortunately, uh, either a, uh, uh, a, a, but fortunately, if the test is uh, completely negative or uh, strongly suggestive of coronary disease, it's a useful study. If it's something in between, you know, moderate calcification but no obvious stenosis, the patient's probably going to end up with a catheterization anyway. But a patient like this probably could be spared a catheterization if the CT shows uh, really clean coronary arteries
0: the patient is concerned about the risks of surgery, she asks what will happen to her if she doesn't have surgery?
1: Well, she's a smart patient. She's asking the best question right up front, and that is, well, what happens if I don't have surgery? And be prepared to to give a good detailed answer on that. And I think we can tell her that uh, the progression of aortic regurgitation um, is is usually a certainty, that uh, her symptoms will worsen, her ventricle will dilate and the strength of the muscle and LV function will begin to deteriorate. She will uh, develop uh, peripheral edema and uh, lose her sinus rhythm quite, quite possibly. And the risk of surgery will then begin to increase. And, uh, and that uh, it would be a much safer course to proceed with uh, an earlier operation to preserve her ventricular function and to uh, improve survival and improve symptoms. But the real reason to move ahead is not relief of symptoms, it's preservation of LV function.
0: She agrees to have surgery. What is your operative approach?
1: Well, uh, again, controversial. These uh, these operations uh, traditionally have been done through uh, median sternotomy, uh, full cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, and uh, Clearly these operations can be done safely through smaller incisions, um, upper hemi-sternotomies, uh, still requiring cardiopulmonary bypass. Cannulation can still be central or, or peripheral. Uh, this probably doesn't, uh, doesn't matter much in, in most patients. And uh, and then the aortic valve surgically replaced. Uh, the TAVR is, uh, has been an option for Stenotic aortic valve disease and uh, has been used in a much more limited way for aortic regurgitation. But I suspect that will change in the future. Uh, because so many of these valves are uh, are bicuspid, there are some additional challenges of uh, placing a catheter valve uh, without paravalvar leak. But I suspect uh, a lot of these obstacles will be overcome uh, in the years ahead. So a surgical approach um, is is still uh, usually from the front. Uh, Others have described anterior uh, thoracotomy approaches, but most of the time, I think it's uh, probably best done through a sternotomy, and one can argue all day whether the full sternotomy or limited incision is, uh, is better. I think the real challenges and special aspects of this kind of case that are worth discussing are best ways to arrest the heart, um, because of course in the setting of severe aortic regurgitation, you clamp the aorta and give cardioplegia directly into the root, uh, the cardioplegia will just run across the valve. You won't be able to uh, keep a good root pressure and you will not arrest the heart effectively and myocardial protection will be poor. So you need an alternate strategy here. Many people will uh, place a retrograde uh, coronary sinus cardioplegia catheter, uh, place the patient on, on bypass, clamp the aorta, and then give the cardioplegia through the uh, coronary sinus. And uh, I think this is this is fine. One of the concerns about this is that the uh, volume of blood in the left ventricle will, will go back and forth across the valve, and it sometimes takes a long time for the cardioplegia to actually... Uh, make it into the coronary arteries. Uh, But this is this is an effective uh, way. Uh, Another is to uh, put the patient on bypass, begin some initial cooling, and then when the heart is uh, a bit cold you can fibrillate the heart, cross clamp the aorta, open it, and give cardioplegia directly into the coronary arteries. Uh, The advantage of that is that you're giving the cardioplegia directly into the coronary arteries you know where the cardioplegia is going and uh, this will sometimes lead to an earlier and more prompt and more effective uh, arrest uh, it's it's worth talking a little bit about left ventricular venting and uh, whether uh, one should change one's usual left ventricular venting strategies for aortic valve replacement here and I th- think there's a, a common misconception that, simply placing a left ventricular vent in, uh, often through the right superior pulmonary vein or even through the LV apex if you have a full sternotomy, whether that uh, will allow you to uh, continue your typical antegrade aortic root cardioplegia delivery, but that, that, uh, that's, a, that's a misconception. Uh, if, if the aortic regurgitation is severe enough that symptoms are produced, and you're in the operating room to replace the valve, it's unlikely that a left ventricular vent will keep up well enough with the aortic regurgitation to keep the heart completely empty. And it doesn't really help maintain root pressure for anti cardioplegia delivery. So, I think LV venting uh, can can be important, um, uh, perhaps to prevent some LV overdescension or, Early on institution of bypass, but but it rarely can keep the LV completely empty. Uh, there's another discussion about how how one keeps the left ventricular uh, cavity emptied on reperfusion in the setting of say a, a repaired aortic valve where there's some residual aortic regurgitation, but but that's another uh, another topic. So uh, I should also mention too that of course there are some new valves uh, that can be delivered uh, through an open aortotomy but with, without sutures being placed, these so-called sutureless catheter valves, and they can be put in uh, too in, the, in, in this uh, situation. Although many patients with aortic uh, regurgitation have a dilated annulus, and sometimes these bigger valves, sutureless valves, uh, may, not, may not seat quite as well in, in those. But uh, the approach is is usually cardiopulmonary bypass, anterior approach, special attention to cardioplegic arrest in the setting of all that aortic regurgitation and making sure that the heart's well protected uh, during the surgery.
0: You mentioned aortic valve repair. What are your thoughts and approach to valve repair?
1: Well, not another controversial subject. and Surgeons, of course, love, love repairing valves rather than replacing them. The evidence that that's better for the mitral valve is is compelling. The heart works better. The operation's safer, and you can get good durable results. There's really no evidence that the uh, aortic valve is a valve that uh, is better repaired in terms of operative mortality or or uh, or preservation of LV function. Aortic prostheses in general work very very well. So. Uh, the, the reasons to consider a repair uh, are usually that uh, in younger patients, uh, if, it, if the valve is repairable, it's attractive, if it, if it could outlive a bioprosthesis, uh, and if a patient uh, wants to avoid anticoagulation, there may be some role for that. I think the older the patient, um, it, it's not clear that, that there would be a great advantage the concern is here that aortic valve repair is not predictable, um, not predictable at least in most people's hands in in the way that mitral valve repair is, and that there are still a kind of disappointing ten year results with aortic valve repair across the board, at ten to twenty percent failure rate, which isn't as good as a, as a bioprosthesis at least in an elderly patient. So it's got to be a, a good anatomic situation uh, where likelihood of a durable repair is high, and that the patient's going to enjoy real benefit from it in terms of a longer, uh, more durable result um, than, than if the valve were replaced. But again, uh, when it's possible, when, uh, when it looks good, um, it's, it's an attractive option, but more times than not, as opposed to the mitral valve, you're, you'll end up replacing these valves.
0: What about acute aortic regurgitation? How is that different, or do the same rules apply?
1: Well, the clinical scenario is different. Uh, When aortic regurgitation is acute, the left ventricle doesn't have time to accommodate. It doesn't have time to gradually dilate, and the rise in end-diastolic pressure is is much greater, and generally not as well tolerated. The body body abhors uh, sudden change. And so these patients will present um, much earlier with, with, uh, with serious symptoms and sometimes frank congestive heart failure, whereas that same amount of regurgitation, if it occurs over two years, the heart adapts to it gradually, uh, may leave you with an asymptomatic patient. So I think the important thing to recognize is that these patients actually do need urgent intervention. Um, in, there, there is some benefit from, medical therapy, you know, lowering systolic pressure, afterload reduction, inotropic support, to some extent, diuresis. But these patients really need to end up in the operating room very soon. They can uh, go downhill very quickly. Not uh, not like the chronic AR patients so much, uh, but uh, one really needs to think about early intervention there. And remember, too, that an intraortic balloon pump offers no help here. Uh, in fact, it aggravates the aortic regurgitation. So. There's not much value in it. In fact, it can make patients worse.
0: If there's evidence of a dilated root on her preoperative workup, how would this change your surgical approach?
1: Well, it's a, it's a question of how dilated. And, you know, rule of thumb is that if the aortic root is, uh, is more than about 4.5 sonometers in most normal-sized patients uh, at, at the time of aortic valve surgery, you should really be thinking about replacing it. Um, and uh, whether or not the valve can be saved, uh, whether it should be replaced, depends on what's going on with the valve leaflets. But uh, it, it's probably not a good idea to leave an aortic root behind that's more than 4.5 centimeters. There are some exceptions, very, very large patients, very, very old and sick patients. Um, but the rule of thumb is don't don't leave a root behind that's more than 4.5. and And in some situations, maybe even at smaller sizes it should be replaced.
0: Thank you very much Dr. Cameron.
1: Very good. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I uh, I hope this has been useful. I'll I'll just add again that I think that the decision of when to operate in aortic regurgitation particularly in young asymptomatic patients is one of the toughest clinical questions that adult cardiac surgeons find. There are lots of published uh, guidelines uh, about this uh, but, uh, but you'll still see patients that don't quite fit in these guidelines and you're, you're not really sure whether to operate or not, but just remember that with this disease, if you're in doubt, you can, uh, you can monitor for a while and just reevaluate. And with time, uh, the decision becomes much clearer. Often it's the patient who decides to just move ahead because they're, they're uncomfortable waiting, knowing that they have a, a serious heart valve problem. But time has a way of making all things uh, clearer, and uh, this is a disease where, uh, at least in the chronic AR setting, that uh, continued observation is a reasonable option for, for, uh, for many patients. Thank you. Thank you.